that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great From the moment you're a small bambino You eat pizza, you drink vino Then they make you roly-poly You get stuffed with ravioli If your mama's a paisano You will have the world on a plate So see that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great And welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Italian-American Podcast. I am John Viola, your friendly neighborhood moderator, and today is Monday, the 30th of December, right about the turn of the new year. We go into a new decade. It's almost 2020, and what better way to see the old year out than to share with you a little bit about the traditions of New Year's Eve in Italy and uh, a great guest that we have here today. So I'm going to introduce him Right away, let me just say before I do, uh, first of all, I hope everybody had a very, very blessed Christmas. Buon Natale to everybody. I hope you enjoyed all of our videos, um, our episodes focused on Christmas, our Yule Pot project, which was one that uh, we put a lot of love into. Hope you enjoyed six hours plus of uninterrupted Italian and Italian-American holiday music for everybody out there. And if you have been listening and you did listen to our Christmas on Arthur Avenue episode, you were introduced to a friend of ours and a really, really special Italian-American named Daniela Terry. And today you are going to meet her, I would say better half, but we can't say that <laughs> when it's the guys, her other half, right. Christian Galliani, who is uh, the other co-founder of the Arthur Avenue Food Tours and Feast on History and uh, the man behind Wine for the 99. So, Christian, welcome to the show. Grazie mille. It's really nice to have you in here today. And after having spent so much time with your wife and gotten to know her, to get to know you is a pleasure. So I'm really glad you're in. Likewise. We brought Christian in at the behest of and the idea of my partner in crime, the notorious P.O.B., who <laughs> is not here today. He is stuck in New Jersey, but we're going to truck ahead without him. And Christian and I got to come into the studio together today and share a little bit and get to know each other. So we got a lot of great stuff to talk about. Um, I'm most fascinated by the fact that, as you shared with me, first and foremost, you are a an all-too-rare Northern Italian guest on our show. Yes. So tell us about your family's background. So my mother's family is from Piacenza. It's a little city in the northwest corner of Emilia-Romagna, just across the Paul River from the suburbs of Milan. Beautiful place to be. Yes. And... Um, my dad's side of the family is from Milan and from the suburbs of Milan there also. So uh, they emigrated um, to Argentina first. Um, my paternal grandfather had a furniture business in uh, Milan, and he would source his lumber in South America. So we would travel quite a bit. And uh, that's how my dad's side of the family ended up in Buenos Aires. And my mom's family emigrated there after the war in 1949 when everything was just completely bombed. Chaos, yeah. yeah. So they ended up on a boat and they went down there and they met, uh, got together and decided to escape things in 72 when things got really, really bad there. Yeah. And uh, they washed up on the beach of Washington Heights of all places. And <laughs> For those of yeah. you who are outside the Tri-State area, Washington Heights is the uppermost part of the 
Manhattan Island, really, right? I think it's pretty close. Pretty, yeah. pretty close. Yeah. In, Inwood's maybe higher. Inwood is the highest, and this is just right below. And it's not a historically Italian neighborhood. So no. you have an Argentinian Italian uh, couple emigrating from the double double emigration experience, and then ends up in a non-Italian neighborhood, right? Completely, yeah. Uh, so the dividing line in Washington Heights is Broadway. It's sort of they used to joke it was the Berlin Wall. So. <laughs> On one side was east of Broadway was uh, poorer and was predominantly in the 70s when my parents got there, uh, Greek, Irish, Cuban, Puerto Rican, a few Dominican immigrants there, but it got really Dominican in 1983. Um, but where they lived west of Broadway, it was very uh, sort of Orthodox Jewish, uh, what we would consider sort of yuppie-ish or hipster these days. Um, they called them Bohemians at the time. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. And, so much more uh, flattering name for them, actually. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> so, and so you were the lone Italians in this mix. Yeah, no, my dad knew another Italian. My dad had a Dairy Queen east of Broadway. He wow. started with a shoe store that went out of business because people weren't buying Italian shoes in the seventies. Uh, then they opened a Dairy Queen, which uh, lasted a little longer, but went away. But ostensibly, yeah, I was the only Italian kid I knew. So, growing up. In that mix, I felt like a Martian. I would show up to school with a thermos full of uh, minestrone, <laughs> and my friends were eating PBJ, and they would see, like, they would go home by themselves, and my mother would show up in a fur coat speaking a stage voice. I, thought I, was, I, I just thought she was nuts. I had yeah. no idea. She was just Italian. I had no idea. You have so many guests come on the show that had that experience either coming from Italy and moving to an, a non-Italian neighborhood or, or like myself, leaving an Italian enclave and ending up in the suburbs without other Italians. And I always come back to, I think I said it last episode, that's a whole other immigration experience. And like the, the lunch is a touchstone for so many people, but it's so real. I experienced, I mean, my family's Southern Italian. They had been here for generations, but in an enclave, we went to an Irish town in Jersey and my lunch was weird. And my mom showed up with a heavy accent and a leather jacket. And all these other moms <laughs> look like Martha Stewart. And I was like, where where do I belong? Like, I, you know, I, yeah. where was my tribe? I, I knew we'd left them behind, but I, it was very, very strange. I, alien is the word I always yeah. came back to. Absolutely. So when we found out about Arthur Avenue, which is relatively close, it's just two exits on I-95 from Washington Heights. We were there twice a week. So when we first got there. I looked around and I said, oh, okay, so other people are eating sort of the same food. And if they weren't speaking the same iteration of Italian, I could sort of make it out, right? Yeah. I could see other people having the same interactions. Other people were speaking loudly, were <laughs> speaking demonstratively. <laughs> right. Yeah. Other people's parents were speaking in stage voices. <laughs> Things made more sense. I made sense for the first time. So that's a great deal of why... Arthur Avenue was so near and dear to me personally. It's the first place I've ever felt at home. It's a mothership. Life, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. It's a stage voice, by the way, is a fantastic. I'm writing that down because that says so much about who we are. And I, I never put that piece together, but that's really what it is. I wish Rosella was here because she does a great impression of her mother uh, in her mother, who is an actual actress and uh, came from Italy. But yeah, that that's a big part of, I think, what drives. It certainly drove me to do the show and a lot of us to do this show or like you guys with the tours, both in Italy and Arthur Avenue, to preserve that culture. I often think those of us who experienced that alien feeling and then were in some senses relieved of that burden, we t might tend to fight harder to preserve or appreciate or pass on 
that culture, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. It ossifies you a little bit. Yeah, and in that sense, I, I equate it to peace of mind, right? Yeah. It's, it's the feeling of belonging that's so important, and that's, sadly, if I can you know, wax a little poetic here, I think that's what's missing in our society. That's what a lot of people describe as what tends to be missing in the new generation is this feeling of belonging. Yeah. It's this alien feeling that you describe. So for me, the idea of feeling at home, having that peace of mind is priceless. So especially now as an adult, I, that's my, that, that's what I look for most in my life is having that peace of mind. It's so funny because, you know, we dance around it a lot on this show because, you know, I I think Roselle is the youngest of us. We're all in our thirties or forties. And it does seem like in recent generations in particular, particularly with the explosion of communication technology and just a, a real change in sort of even, I would say, you know, the, the, the growth of a global generation, um, the idea of having an identity that is predetermined in some way is not only becoming more and more foreign, but in a lot of cases becoming almost looked down upon. Um, you know, you don't have limitations based on what you are ethnically. or you, you. But the truth of the matter is, it's a huge flowing river of life experience built into you, into your blood memory, into the way your sure. parents and grandparents did things, you do things. And it's becoming um, abundantly clear to me that as much as we may as a society be trying to move away from that, it's okay to move away from the limitations of that. But you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Exactly. Exactly. And my dad always used to say, if you don't know who you are, you'll never know where you're going. Never. No. So that that for us was important. Identity, basically, our, our right to have our identity is as important as our right to breathe. Yeah. My import- I my agree opinion. with you. Yeah. So our free to be you and me, that's that's an old school sentiment. If I can go back to the 70s, yes, you know, true, that's, yeah. that's a big deal. Yeah, it is a big deal. I think oftentimes we run past that. And we think we're free from being ourselves. And that's not the case, you know. And and that's what all these projects are. And so you sound like from our getting to know one another a little bit, you and I have had similar paths in that no matter what we were doing professionally, it starts to bring you back to finding ways to spread, frankly, that feeling of safety and empowerment that comes with your identity. So you ended up uh, leaving your other, other lines of work and starting, I guess you started... Um, Feast on History first, right? Or Arthur Avenue Food Tours first? So the way it ended up for me was uh, it wasn't really a linear path. It was, it started as, uh, for me in real estate professionally, that's that's where I got my start in life was I worked for a real estate developer just right out of college and I was just showing apartments here in the city. And one thing led to another and I uh, moved on in, in my career and I was working at one of the big uh, four in their developments division. I was one of their sales managers during the... Um, leading up to the crisis. And after the crisis, um, I was basically told I had to fire my team to finish up the development that I was doing as best as I could. I was in Brooklyn at the time and, um, I ended up, uh, finishing up the project and floating around as an independent, um, for a while as an independent real estate broker here in the city. Yikes. And of course, three days after the grace period on my Cobra coverage runs out, (laughs) I get whacked with an appendicitis attack. Oh, man. As it happens, I was uh, living in Harlem at the time, and my mother was visiting from Florida. 
and my mother was busting my chops about something or other, and I thought I was just getting agita just from <laughs> arguing with her, and it turned out the pain in my stomach just wasn't going away. <laughs> Italian, true, true Italian misdiagnosis. <laughs> like, Mom, I'm eating poison. Stop busting my <laughs> But it was like one of those things where it just wasn't getting better. So I ended up uh, spending three nights in the St. Luke's Roosevelt Hotel. Wow, gosh. I got whacked with a five-figure bill. And one of my friends back in my old neighborhood, we talk about, you know, belonging. One of my friends in my old neighborhood reached out to me and said uh, that he heard that I was laid up and he offered me the chance to make a little extra money while I was figuring out my next move. And he had opened up a wine store called Vines on Pine, uh, which is still there, which I still moonlight at a couple nights a week. And um, I ended up working there at night, just jockeying the register for extra money. And his partner recognized that I liked wine, and he brought me along slowly. And um, I basically started spending more and more time there at the shop. It was easy. It was like, it was beautiful. I didn't have to fight people for 100 different details. I didn't have to have seven different, 10 different, 12 different interactions just for one deal. Yeah. You know, it, it was it was simple. It was linear. Oh, you want this? Yeah. Okay, here you go. Yeah. Great. Done deal. So I started to spend more and more time there, and uh, in one day walks Danielle with the dog. Really? And we would give dog treats out, and the dog would pull into the store. <laughs> so we ended up talking and just talking about our shared experience. She was the other Italian living in Washington Heights. <laughs> she somehow found her way there. She was working at the Cloisters at the time. And one thing led to another. I took her out to lunch on City Island, and here I am. So uh, from there... Uh, the influence of a, of a good partner is basically very, very present in my life. So listening to Danielle, who I always listen to because she's smarter than I am, <laughs> um, I took her advice and I just threw myself into the uh, wine world just because I enjoyed it and regardless of whether or not I could make a living at it right away. So I ended up taking on more and more responsibility at the store. I ended up uh, writing a blog called uh, Wine for the 99. And just basically worked, I found my philosophy that uh, wine is the most democratic beverage on the planet, right? That's, the more I learned, the more I realized, yeah, it's, there's museum pieces and there's great art. Yeah. As, as it relates to wine, there's great works of art in the wine world, but it is the single most democratic beverage in the history of the planet beyond tea, right? Wow. I'm, uh, you blow my mind here. I feel like Pat, Pat always says, you know, my mind's being blown, but explain to me more this idea that wine being the most democratic because there's good wine at every and price every point, every wine. geography, yes. every, yeah. Yeah, there's good wine tucked away in every corner of the world. It also happens to be one of the oldest beverages sure. on the planet. The Roman slaves drank it and the Roman Caesars drank it. They drank wow. the same wine, by the way. Wow, there that's was, fascinating. So. What, what varietals were, not to go too tangential, but sure. what, what varietals were popular in Rome, in, in the empire in Roman times? So Primitivo was definitely there. That's Really? It's named as an homage to the Romans and to the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians are thought to have uh, the first wine cultivated for mass consumption, and that's uh, the oldest carbon-dated grape, to my knowledge, is still Shiraz. It comes really? from the Fertile Crescent there. Wow. And then that spreads uh, through diffusion of culture and trade. And the Greeks drank it by the gallon when they uh, found southern Italy. They brought it with them. They brought Alianicone wow. with them. And I didn't realize that was indigenous to Greece, Alianico. Yes. Wow. Mm -hmm. And, well, it's an homage. Alianicone is a play on words for Elenikos. What is oh Hellenic Hellenic exactly wow that's amazing I had no idea yeah so that's that's where that spreads and it spreads throughout the Italian peninsula and via the Roman legionnaires that would carry 
you know, their their foodstuffs and their agriculture with them when they marched. Uh, they brought it all over Europe. So wine has been the unifying beverage throughout Europe and by uh, extension throughout the Mediterranean Basin for years and years, you know, for thousands of years. And it was never intended to be this sort of monolithic sort of ivory tower. Yeah. That happens from, they start to, you know, they start to really codify wine. Um, the French are the first to really do so. Like everything else. They, they <laughs> codify <laughs> and snobify something so beautiful. Exactly. In some cases, it really holds up, right? I sure. mean, give me a first growth Bordeaux or a, or a first growth uh, Burgundy over anything. But oh, they're not wrong. They're, they're definitely not they're wrong. Not. They're just, you know, they're very, they're very good at codifying stuff. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, though, so... Not to not to run on too much, but yeah, that's my philosophy is basically that there's good wine in every price point, and that's the way I was raised in the business by uh, Terry Peel, my mentor. Um, he taught me that you can find good wine in any price point, and it's true. You can find a direct import Bordeaux for like twelve dollars. That if you close your eyes, you think you're on the left bank of Bordeaux. Really, you think it, it's transportive. It takes you there, and it's good quality. I mean, you know, I, it's interesting to have this conversation because, as I point out earlier, you are one of the few non-Southern Italians that's come on the show to do this, and I always get a lot of people who write us, because we're all Southern and because we're all very active in being Southern, some people would say, well, you know, it's a little too leaned in one direction. But me, personally, I try, as a matter of pride, principle, economic support, whatever it is, to, to really search out and drink and gift and use, when I entertain, Southern Italian wines. I think that they're underappreciated in a lot of ways. And you have one here, which makes me really happy because... Happens to be my specialty. Really? Yep. Southern so Italian wines. This is... You're, I'm, you are the right man to be with me. But I've been told, and I could be wrong, but you talk about your philosophy on democratic beverage. There's a uh, Montepulciano d'Abruzzo with a twig on the... Zaccanini. Zaccanini. Is that not the most sold bottle of wine by Gross coming out of Italy? Isn't that like the most purchased bottle? Uh, you might be right about that. I don't have the actual figures. I know that uh, for sure what would give it the most competition would probably be Santa Margherita, the uh, Pinot Grigio there. Yeah. Uh, That's from has, where? That is from uh, Veneto, Veneto and yeah. also parts of Friuli. They they source it from all over these days. Uh, don't get me started on Santa Margherita. I think they're the best marketing company yes, in Italy. Yes, done a great job. Yeah. When you have their wine bars in airports, uh, you know that they're doing well. Yeah. I just don't think they pay attention to the wine anymore. Really? The Zaccanini is like 12 bucks a bottle, I mm -hmm. think, right? I, Santa Margarita, what's it, 20 $30, $30 a bottle? $30. And that's probably a lot of marketing, I would it's imagine. It's pure marketing. It's yeah. like Vuv Clico, right? You're just paying for their marketing. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what that's, that's You're paying for those idiot pencil cases that they come in. It's like, what does champagne have to do with a pencil case at Christmas? Can you tell me, please? That's really true. I, I really like the Montepulciano da Brut, so I think I, they're like very good table wines to me, and I like that bottle. And It's great. I come back to the fact that when people say to me, like, what do you drink? I'm like, it's a $12 bottle. I'll drink it all day. I could drink yeah. it with everything. I mean... I don't have a sophisticated wine palate. I grew up drinking wine my grandfather and my father and uncle made in the garage and enjoying it very much. Um, as I've gotten older, obviously I've diversified. But, yeah, to me it's amazing that you can say to somebody, here's something where you could spend $12 and actually thoroughly enjoy the experience. You Absolutely. Know? Absolutely. And that's what it's about because it's mass marketed to people that have a willingness to collect it to make a collectible experience out of it. And I respect that because there are certain wines, there are certain great wines that are pieces of living art. And yeah. I, I appreciate that very much. But by that same token, if you're just looking to have something delicious with your uh, spaghetti or pasta asciutta, 
you don't have to spend $50 on a bottle of wine just to get you there. Yeah. And that's what the ethos of Wine for the 99 was, is while I respect and I've worked in museums of wine, I've had from uh, working in the wine stores, uh, one of the wine stores sent me to Psalm School, and I ended up working the floor of Del Posto as an assistant Psalm. Wow. As my first real restaurant wow. job. Wow. And then from there, they recognized that my <laughs> I was I was sorely lacking at the age of 40 <laughs> in uh, fine dining experience, so they <laughs> sent me up to... Um, they sent me up to Tarry Lodge in Porchester, where I was their yeah. lead psalm for a couple of years. And from there, I ended up getting recruited at Italy downtown, and I was uh, one of their senior beverage managers. Wow. And I worked in the fine dining there. Um, so all this has basically brought me here. Yeah. So this is, you know, it's like the old cliche, you only live twice. I mean, literally, <laughs> for me, that's, that's the truth. I totally understand that. I've gone through my own <laughs> iterations, different versions of career, and but I... I really find it amazing because wine's intimidating to people, you know. It can be, yeah. It really so you start off because you appreciate it, you like it, you're in a store and I understand to become a sommelier is a is a heavy task. I mean it's not an easy It involves a lot of drinking. <laughs> That's the good part. I'm not I, drinking, hon, I'm studying. <laughs> that would be nice. Danielle could... would find my flashcards. German <laughs> German dryness category. She's like, Is this a joke? <laughs> no, it's, it's very good. real. <laughs> so you you specialized in Southern Italian wines. What was that about for you? Why? So it's funny because you're sort of involved in this without knowing. I um, NIAF wow. put out a call in 2014 for a press trip to Urpina. Yeah. So I was the wine blogger on that thanks to Danielle. She said, you should apply for this. She flicked at the back of my ear with her with her fingers. Said, Hello, anybody in there? Apply yeah. for this. Wow. So they took me and I went on that tour. And she concurrently found her, she reconnected uh, via the Baronessa Bellali, uh, Cecilia as we call her, um, found her uh, long-lost family in the Cilento, yeah. which is nearby. Sure, and, yeah. That's uh, where my, my, my family comes from, the Valo, the mountainside of the Cilento, yeah. So they, they reconnected, so we both went concurrently, so I went on the European tour. And they um, had me connect with all these great vineyards and all these wonderful um, suppliers of food, great cultural uh, opportunities there. So I got to really get a sense for Urpina. And it struck a chord in me because it's it spoke to my ethos that good wine doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be. A lot of this was vastly underappreciated. Yeah, Alianico, especially from the Tarazi can age upwards of 50 years. They call it the Barolo of the South. Wow. And Alianico uh, can be manipulated to be big, bold, and juicy, right? It's a Parker wine, right? So for those that don't know, uh, Robert Parker, the wine critic, was the first one to attach a numerical score wow. to a wine so that it would be easier for consumers to sort of tell, you know, which wine they should gravitate towards. Uh, but the problem was is he... And this, I'm going to go off on a side rant. You'll sure, forgive me. that's what this show's about. So, uh, Mr. Parker uh, created this sort of monster without knowing what he was doing at the time. In my opinion, is he pushed bolder, bigger, more tannic wines? Because, mm. among other reasons, he's a, he was also a smoker. Oh, so his palate tended S to lean less towards, sensitive, right? Right, or it it just tends to gravitate towards stronger flavors. Mm. And in that respect, you know. You have Alianico, like Salvatore Monetieri's, uh, who happens to be uh, a distant uh, relation of Daniel's. Wow. Was putting out fantastic wines that were just huge, huge wines, but that were balanced mm -hmm. on the head of a pin. I mean, you had huge fruit, enormous tannin, and uh, just high acidity. But 
played so well together. Hmm. And I was blown away by the complexity of these wines. And when I looked at the sticker price, when I looked at the at the retail cost of them in America, it was a joke. I mean, you had a wine of his was going for, just to give you an idea, 50 bucks, and it could compete with a second or third or fourth growth Bordeaux very easily. Which would retail for? Oh, upwards of hundreds of dollars, hundreds, wow. sometimes thousands, depending <sighs> upon the chateau, right? Um, or even just making a, a closer comparison, you go to Barolo, and the land cost is five, 10, 15 times that of what's in the Taurasi, yeah. if not more. And in wine, it's all about land cost. It's all about opportunity cost. Your hard costs dictate everything. So, for example, uh, Napa has to put out these big, juicy wines that ape people's uh, sort of base, base uh, desires, right? right? Juicy, juicy, oaky, and appeal to the vast majority of people because their land costs are insane, so they have to sell so much wine just to make ends meet. Wow, that's amazing. I never really thought of that, to be honest with you. I mean, I, as a just a drinker, you don't think of the industry and what its sort of directions are in terms of trend setting and taste setting. And, uh, you know, I always kind of felt like I like the wines I like, mm-hmm. and I don't necessarily think about what we're being driven to, to appreciate and what people are expecting. And I find it really interesting, too. I think the thing about wine, and of course we want to talk about New Year's Eve, but this is such a great conversation. We could do a whole series on wine. Um I think one of the really amazing things for me is as a anthropologist and historian or amateur historian, beer is grown in the same place, but it's different hops or whatever. Mm -hmm. This is the same vine in a lot of cases that has this history and there's a whole story to it. So the idea that you can go to places where it's been cultivated for so long or, you know, you think about the um, plague that hit European wine and uh, I guess it was the early 1800s when... Yeah, the phylloxera. Yeah, and I had to bring the American root. And so like, the there's so much history there. to that, you know? Sure. And I've been really impressed by how many countries have an interesting wine culture. And I've been able to try wine from, you know, Georgia and uh, the Central Asian republics and these places. And it always fascinates me to think, wow, we're sort of all looking at it in a very kind of baseball card way. It's a collectible. This yeah. is a good brand, good That's marketing. A great way to put it. And you're missing the idea that you can really almost experience a culture right through it. And whether you pick up or not, that sort of foreignness and uniqueness, it's in there and it's amazing. And nothing takes you to a place or speaks more about the culture than the wine does. It's this idea of terroir that really the word the French word that means of the earth, yeah. of that dirt. It's absolutely true. So I always come back to the with, with all due respect, the, the, the northern uh, put down for Southerners is Terroni, you know, people mm-hmm. of the earth. I think that's the greatest compliment you can give somebody, actually. Absolutely. You know, I really yeah. roll around in that uh, in that name. So let's talk a little about what you brought, because all we right. really want to talk about New Year's Eve and our traditions, but you, you've been prepped. you got some stuff here. Yeah. So what I'm going to open for us is the Carpene Malvolti, uh, which is the Prosecco from uh, the best place to get Prosecco. Uh, which is the Conigliano Valdobbiadene, uh, which is in Veneto. So uh, wine is, again, very um, location-specific, right? That dictates where you can get the most for your wine is where it's from mm-hmm. for a number of reasons, right? Um, atmospheric conditions, microclimate, minerals, soil, uh, craftsmanship, so on and so forth. But Prosecco is the most democratic of sparkling wines. This is for a number of reasons. It's not intended to be foppish. It's not intended to be... An ivory tower, I keep going back to that, but that's... No, but yeah. So Prosecco is the most widely consumed sparkling wine um, 
in Italy, mm-hmm. and by extension now the United States is starting to catch up on consumption. And what makes it less prestigious than champagne, it's basically the secondary fermentation happens in the tanks. So they pump CO2 into the tanks. So you don't have to pay a little old man or a little old lady to sit there and riddle the bottles or spin them (laughs) around constantly and then have to go back and forth with a liquor of expedition and finish it off, top it off, take out the leaves, so on and so forth. They don't have to do that. Right. So it's much less labor intensive. Right. Um, As a result, it's not quite as complex because you're using a less expensive to cultivate grape called Glera, right. as opposed to just Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier, which is the usual mix uh, for Champagne or most sparkling wines. And so, uh, is it a myth that the Italian sparkling wines are sweeter than Champagne? I always hear people say, like, oh, it's, it must be a Spumante or it's sweeter. It's, but what does Depends. that even mean? Well, it's, that's a great question. It has to do with uh, the dryness scale. So, Brut, which is this, means uh, that it's sort of dry, right? Extra dry, which is confusing, is sweet. Hmm. That's really confusing. So that's the dryness scale underneath. So in sparkling wine, uh, zero dosage uh, literally means there's nothing added to it. So Mm. it's just the wine. There's no added sweetener to make it more palatable. Hmm. I didn't realize they added sweeteners to these things. Because it's it's highly acidic. You have to use very uh, tart wine in order to achieve that balance and in order to let it well, let's open it now. Let, let me taste it. This sounds great to me. You hear that? Good pop. If we're popping Prosecco in the middle of the recording, this is a good day. Thank you very much. Oh, you got like a real official glasses and everything. This is great. Ah, my pleasure. So any excuse I have to uh, quote-unquote research <laughs> the day. You know? So salute. Salute. We're going to recommend all of these. These are your recommendations for New Year's Eve, so we're going to put them on the show page. Sounds great. Hmm. Wow, that's really good. Very tasty. That so it's really good. This retails for nineteen bucks. <laughs> Beat the deal. Yeah, really. And so, see, that doesn't come across as overly sweet to me at all. No, this is brute. Because Asti Spumante was so well marketed in the seventies and the eighties and was so appealing uh to a vast audience yeah. because it was so sweet, because the American palate tends to lean towards sweet. Yeah. We've been putting sugar in everything we we eat for the past 70 years. I mean. Exactly, exactly. And especially um, because of automation and because yeah. of all number of reasons, you know, we can get into. It's also a great preservative yeah. for, a lot of, for a lot of things. Um, so the palate tends to lean heavily towards sweet. So when Americans, uh, and especially us Italian-Americans, got a hold of Asti Spumante in the 70s and they went nuts marketing it, <laughs> it blew the roof off of yeah. their marketing expectations. Their sales started to come in. So automatically, people now associate Italian sparkling wine with a sweeter taste, which isn't true. My wife is convinced she prefers champagne. I'm going to make sure she tries this. For those of you out there who like a good sparkling wine at New Year's Eve, I'm definitely thinking this is a, a place to start. Now, you got another one here. Yes, so this is um, this is one that I got for you, and this is one that I brought for uh, Pat. Oh, wow. And so this is uh, for you and your wife, too. Oh, thank you very much. Tell me what this is. So this is a traditional method sparkling Chardonnay from the slopes of Mount Etna. Wow. One of my favorite Sicilian producers called Terrazze dell'Etna, or Terraces of Etna. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Vintage 2013. So it's still got a little bit of that uh, tartness. It's still very alive. But um, this is basically a champagne. It's made in the champagne method. But yeah. because it's from Sicily, it doesn't get that uh, same cachet yeah. that it would get if it were from, let's say, the Clos de Menil in Champagne, right? But it's made in the same method. 
and tell me rates. what's this retails for. Uh, fifteen bucks. Wow, gosh, that's and, amazing, isn't it? Yeah, and it tastes. You close your eyes. It's a blanc de blanc. Basically, it's a it's a chardonnay based sparkling wine that's made in the traditional method with very little dosage. It tastes very citrusy and delicious. You close your eyes. You think you're tasting Paul Roger. That's so. We're going to reiterate for everybody out there listening. First of all, uh, it sounds like Christian got the memo that I am, as Pat would say, a Sicilian masquerading as a Neapolitan because I, I have a special affinity for Sicily, my grandfather's home. Uh, Terrazzi dell'Etna, Brut 2013, $15 a bottle, and uh, it's going to be like drinking uh, a Blanc de Blanc. That's amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. th- you're preaching to the choir, but I love that we can share this with everybody. And out of curiosity, what is Pat? going to be drinking on New Year's Eve. So Pat's going to be drinking Although this. if he doesn't come into the city now, I'll be drinking it because no he's, he's out of luck. If you snooze, you lose. <laughs> That's right, Pat. So Cerazzo is the uh, entry-level Ayanico from one of my favorite producers, uh, San Salvatore, which is in the town where Danielle's family is from. And oh, it's this, right is, next to this is Pat's Hello. hometown wine. I got I to make sure he gets this. This is... I cannot deny him this. So I love I love Pepino Pagano's wines. I've been the evangelist of San Salvatore for years now. Ever since I worked at Tal Posto, uh, we had this on our banquet wine menu there. And when I got to visit San Salvatore in person in 2015, I lost my mind. <laughs> so you'll notice the uh, t- the logo is the water buffalo there. Yes. It's the bufala. Yeah. So that's sort of, it's on the bufala highway there. As we know, it's, it's the... Uh, it's ground zero for buffalo mozzarella yeah. production in Italy. So they have 500 head of wild buffalo that free range on the property for wow. biodiversity. They have their own biodiesel that they use. All of the grapes are cultivated uh, organically. Wow. They don't spray the vines. And Pepino basically considers himself a descendant of the Eleatics and the Eleatic school of philosophers that had their home in the Cilento, the Greek philosophers that made their home there, like Parmenides and Pythagoras, etc. So he he looks at himself as sort of this um, this inheritor of their mm. idea of balance. So wow. while he's a businessman and he has several luxury hotels, and he has a very very well marketed wine, he also puts a great deal of thought into the experience that one has when one drinks this wine. So this is a traditional tasting Alianico that doesn't see a drop of oak that has black fruit, earth, that pizza oven smoke in mm. it. It's very earthy and it has beautiful, elegant tannins on the finish. That does sound like Pat, actually. I mean, it's funny to tease, but like that is absolutely the perfect bottle of wine for him. It's interesting that you can know very little. I mean, you know Pat. We've met for the first time, but hit the notes of a person's... Uh, interest and match them to a wine that's a great skill first of all thank you for thinking of us and doing that but my pleasure it speaks a lot about your whole philosophy on on why this is such a special product because there is something for everybody out there absolutely and we actually incidentally if i can put in a shameless plug here go ahead feast on history visits this vineyard and three others uh, on our tours of italy so how did you end up with the i mean i know I know how you guys ended up on Arthur Avenue tours because I've spoken to Danielle about that, mm-hmm. but, but Feast on History, I don't think I've actually covered where that came from. So I was having a, a Don Draper moment on the couch <laughs> one night, and I looked at Danielle and I said, well, what do you do? You're dealing with history, you're dealing with food, Feast on History. There it is. Um, use a pomegranate as your logo. To me, I love that logo, by the way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty baller. She, yeah. really, she, she really captures. You guys do a great job. I always tease her, you know, the, her social media... <laughs> even me, I've been to these places a lot, 
and I'm inspired to go back and find things. Maybe we have similar tastes. It just hits me right. And yeah, the graphics, the 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 brand. I love the Arthur Avenue food tours. Is the tricolor cookie, which to me is only Italian American. You know, yeah, I've never seen is. one in Italy. It, yeah, it's true. It is Italian American. It's so perfect. Like a, my cousin-in-law. I'll give a shameless plug to him because I just adore the guy. Um, actually, he's in Port Chester. Uh, he was a chef. Italian-American kid, mm-hmm. you know, grew up learning how to cook in their big Abruzzese family, ended up in culinary school and worked at a couple of restaurants and ended up winning an episode of Chopped and using the money to create a restaurant. And when he started the restaurant, which he's since sold, he, oh, yes, please, he uh, he found a passion for making homemade gelato in ah. the restaurant. Thank you. Sure. And that kind of grew it became a combination gelato ice cream which he would explain the whole difference and it's called bona bona ice cream it's all small batch he now opened a really big facility up in port chester it's like you know they have a oh that's him yeah it's my cousin-in-law oh, he's that's one of awesome. my close friends too he's amazing and he's got the food trucks all over but his first kind of flavor because he wanted to be italian american was tricolor cookie or rainbow cookie ice cream oh my god it's so good i mean i'm gonna bring that home for daniel oh so let me tell you mind. when you go up to that place I go up there a lot now. Um, and him and his partner, Scott, are always really great about letting me take it without paying, which I hate, <laughs> but that's the Italian way. And uh, it is my absolute favorite. They put, like, an Italian meringue on top, and they toast it. It's, no. Oh, it's out of control. Oh, and they figured on. out some proprietary way to get the toasted meringue in the carton so it's there when you open it, like, even their uh, package. Stuff. Yeah, it's really very good, oh I have my to say. God. But that cookie and the pomegranate, they're great symbols for us. I... I I admire what you guys have done, and it's really an appealing brand. Thank you. And then how many tours are you doing per year now? Uh, in Italy, we're offering four. So just a little as a um, – just to sort of – you heard it here first. We have begun construction of our cooking and wine school at the property wow. as well. At Congratulations. Borgo. Thank you very much. Yeah, at Borgo La Pietraia. So as part of our standard tours, we had a cooking class, and we still do uh, with the Baronessa Bellelli at her buffalo farm. But we also – saw that there was a great desire on the part of our guests. Uh, that was always their favorite activity. And there's so much in the Cilento. I mean, that's the birthplace of the, quote, Mediterranean diet. It's yes, where it Ansel Keys has right. you know, stayed. So there's so much great food and history in the area uh, that we wanted to spend more time there. And we felt that, you know, we had a Ferrari sitting in the driveway and all we, and we, had, we were just handed the keys. So yeah. we said, oh, yes, we're going to run with this. So, wow. They offered me the ability to have my wine school there and just to focus on companion wines, which happen to be my specialty and my love. And a lot of great offerings. So we have so many great vineyards in the area as well. You have Luigi Maffini, who also happens to be from Piacenza. Mm, wow. And distantly, so that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, you have San Salvatore there. You've got so much stuff in the area that we felt that focusing on the food and wine as well would really uh, would be a great opportunity because it's simply a matter of time before one of these big companies ends up doing it. So um, we figured, why not us? And That's fantastic. So this is just the natural next step in our professional evolution, we felt. So you guys are going to be there quite a bit then in the coming years. That's the thinking, yeah, is we're going to spend uh, quite a bit of time there, and that's going to lead into uh, some other interesting opportunities for us. So, And it's all about flying the flag and, and promoting this opportunity that exists in southern Italy that just doesn't exist in the north. I mean, as a northerner, it's it's I can see this because you see that everything is so uh, developed in the yeah. north to a great degree, uh, for good and bad, certainly. Yeah. Um, 
you know, the same people that are bringing in the refugees to work in the factories are the ones turning around and saying that, that you know, immigrants are bad at the same <laughs> time. So it's like Italy. <laughs> it's Italy, right? Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. It's like uh, do as I say, not as I, not as I. As a I southerner, I'm just glad they're not saying it about us anymore because that was you know 1948 yes. to not that long ago. We were the ones working in the factories, and they were complaining about us so yeah. it's amazing really and ironically it was the, we northerners that sacked you guys and took away all your wealth in the first place amen thank you i want that on the record you're my favorite northerner absolutely true and so. you know you're doing what i hope we're doing with the show which is to say like this diaspora is clearly self-identified after in some cases one generation in many cases multiple generations and you get to go back and not only embrace your own heritage and all of the beauty that comes from that belonging, which is in, it's not necessarily altruism. You know, you, you're getting so much out of it, but from some sense of doing for others, you're contributing to a, a nation and an economy that did lose tens of millions of people to this diaspora, and that's like cleaving an arm off of a body. And so if, yes. if fingers or parts of that arm can go back and participate, it's... Hugely important to Italy. Hugely important. It's also bringing us closer to what we feel is the ultimate shared identity. Yeah. What does it mean to be an Italian? Yes. Which is interesting because, I, you know, we talk about not running away from identity that you inherit. But there's something I love. And, of course, the politics of Italy speaks to the opposite today. But there's something I love about the universality of Italianness in that there are many people who are not ethnically Italian that are Italophile or become Italian or, or move there or live amongst Italian-Americans here or whatever it is. And there's so many versions of Italian. You know, we, we tease about the regional differences and the history is certainly checkered. But that's, well, that's what it means to be Italian, right? That's what it means separate. to be Italian. Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely, is to be in these very unique pockets of culture. And I lo- like we were talking about that last night, my wife and I, you know, I love the diversity of Italian culture. And yeah, it all sort of feels like part of the same Italianita. Yes. And that's why I always get sort of upset. I know Rosella goes crazy, Pat goes crazy when Italians come from Italy and criticize Italian-American food and culture. Oh, that's the best. You guys must see it constantly on well, our I was working. Avenue. I was working on, at Italy. Oh, right? That's got to be the epicenter for it. It was great because you could always tell who the Italian tourists were because they would show up in mobs. <laughs> It's August, and they're all wearing ski jackets because they're afraid of the speed fiddle. <laughs> and they're all wearing scarves, and they all look like, you know, Frosty the Snowman. Of course. And they're walking around like a nine-year-old girl who saw, like, something that she doesn't like, so they all have a stank face on. And the it's number so one true. question that they have for you is why they misspelled something. Yes, they go on crazy. A sign. I know. And it's, it's, it's like this whole idea. Like, growing up, I always thought that it was only my mother. Like, she insisted on eating at Italian restaurants. Every single weekend. Anytime we went out, it could only be an Italian restaurant. And I thought it was just her, again, that had this particular sickness, let's say. So she would pitch a fit if my father had the temerity to suggest, (laughs) let's go have a steak. (laughs) Let's go have, let's try that. Let's try Chinese food tonight, right? Of course. Oh, no, no, it's not clean. But this is the same thing, right? I would ask these Italian tourists, why the hell did you get on a plane for nine hours in some cases, to come to the Mecca of food, right? Sushi, Indian, anything you want, you can get in New York City. Yeah. And you can get the highest iteration of that. You can get the highest expression the best, of the that. best, yep. Right? If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Amen. So 
I would ask them, and they would just get a blank look on their face, and they'd just snap too and just have a visceral reaction of, oh, no, 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 it's not, I, I'm tired of hamburger. <laughs> I need some real food. What they don't understand about themselves is the reason Italians travel all over the world searching out Italian food, Italian culture, whatever it That's is. That's right. Because the act of being a critic must be the highest pleasure for an Italian in the world. <laughs> being able to criticize something else. It's like they, they think That's about exactly this. That's exactly right. They stay in Italy. They beat the hell out of Italy. It's the worst place. Nothing works. I hate this. I got to live it. They leave. They either move or vacation. They search out their own culture because they miss it. Mm-hmm. Then they criticize yes. that culture for not being in Italy. And that cycle, it's an endless life's pursuit. And I this. sometimes I think that... We, because it happens no matter how many generations you're removed. Ask every Italian what their favorite Italian restaurant is, and they'll say, well, nothing's as good as home cooking. You know what? Not every mother is a five-star Michelin <laughs> chef. So that that can't possibly be the case. Some I don't know what you're talking about. Mine, <laughs> mine, mine too. I know. Mine Mom, is. My mom started listening a couple weeks ago, so now I'm like on pins and needles. You're in trouble. She told me she wants to come on the show. I told her my brain would explode. If I had my mother on the show, I always say this is like a therapist couch. I would never get up off that there. If she was oh, here, please. it would be... Who are you telling? My mother's visiting now. My mother's visiting now. She just left today. And it's just like every single time I get flashbacks to being eight years old. Yes, absolutely. Please, Dad. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Stand up straight. <laughs> you want your friends to eat your bum? Uh-uh. My mother was never critical of us. She's just uh, a powerful force of nature. And I, mm. I would die to see what that episode would sound like. But to be fair, she is a really good cook. She never like loved the act of cooking but she's a great cook and but i find these italians everybody wants to tell you what's wrong when they come here and i'm totally. always pounding on the drum of like this is a different version of the culture like you right. know you're not going to go to milan and expect neapolitan pizza and you're not going to come down to catania and expect to get like a great cotoletto that's different things right. we're a different thing we we right. cooked with what we got here and it's just uh i think it's easier to beat up on the diaspora than it is to uh, sort of embrace the variety. Absolutely, and I think that goes back to that's that's sort of programmed into our uh, DNA as a people, right? Because we weren't a people, quote unquote, until the late eighteen hundreds, right? In eighteen eighteen, we're not even now, really. Yeah, no. Really. So I, I mean, mean, we have more similarities post World War Two than we've ever had as a people. Absolutely. And, you know, after the war. Yeah, that next generation of people like your mom go to the Argentinas and the Australias, maybe come here, Canada, and take with them the post-war brands, you know, the Nutellas and World Media, and take with them uh, radio and television. And speaking of television, I've been watching Mediaset Italia, which has all of your favorites this holiday season. Irresistible Italian Entertainment on DirecTV. You can discover new recipes with a new series of Cotto e Mangiato. It's always delicious and it's perfect for the holidays. You can keep up with the beloved game show host, Jerry Scotti, on Conto La Revescia. And don't miss the touching new drama series, Oltre la Soglia, starting December 15th. DirecTV has the Italian TV you love. You can get Mediaset Italia a la carte for $10 a month plus taxes or Italian Direct Package for $20 a month plus taxes. So call 1-877-778-4794 today. That's 1-877-778-4794 today. World Direct a la carte service requires activation of a qualifying base package. Hardware available separately at an additional cost. New customer offer requires equipment lease and credit approval. Other conditions apply. Call 1-877-778-4794 or visit att.com for full details. But in reality, the availability of, of you know television like we have now with the Media City Italia and 
what we had with rye as it became international, that made us a, a people. You know, we, we, rye did more for the Italian culture, I think, than uh, any of the champions that Odis or Gimento ever could for unifying it, you know. Absolutely. Because it gave, it gave them hearts and minds. Yeah. It gave a common mythology and, and, and theme, you know, to, to who we are. And it did it around the world. And I'm very proud to represent an Italian-American branch of this tree. And uh, it brings us really to the topic we, we came here to talk about, which is New Year's Eve, which comes up yes. tomorrow. Now you know what to drink. And I, I think everybody's going to be doing their own kind of version. I find New Year's Eve is weird because everybody has unique traditions, right? Yes. My grandfather's side from Sicily, which is, I think, the... I have I have Sicilian Basilicat and Campania, Pugliese. I have all of these different ethnicities in me or, or backgrounds in me, but I think Sicilian I kind of run towards the most. And in my Sicilian family, there was a Capitone made again, uh, and everybody had to have a bite for good luck. My grandfather always talks about his aunt running around with this eel, making him sure everybody young had a bite. Oh, and that's awesome. they were the ones who were banging pots and pans to scare away the bad spirits for the new year. And Are you serious? Yeah, my grandfather was big into that. Oh, he still awesome. does it. So my, my grandparents live up in the mountains now, upstate New York, and I, my grandfather and I are extremely close. They come down for Christmas. We have a great holiday. And then they go back up. They don't want to stay for New Year's. <laughs> so he says, you know, they fall asleep early. They wake up like 4 in the morning, my grandparents. But he's like, I always try to stay up at New Year's. And if I'm going to fall asleep before midnight, I go out and bang the pots and pans <laughs> to ward off the evil spirits. And I love that about him. And that's a big... I know a lot of families break their furniture or throw their furniture out and get new furniture. We used furniture. to throw stuff out the window Did when you? we were kids. When we were kids, we were living in Washington Heights on a building on stilts. Wow. And um, my dad used to laugh and probably, if I did that today, it would probably hit my backyard where I live now. Because <laughs> ironically, I live in the building under the stilts now. <laughs> You're glad there's <laughs> no Italians throwing their furniture out then. <laughs> well, we didn't throw furniture, but we would throw like, you know, Old glassware and stuff really? in the woods and stuff. We were, yeah, we did stupid things when we were kids, but but that's 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 got ancient implications to it, you know. Yeah, I mean, this was not sanctioned. I want to say this for the record: if my mother ever listens to this, this was not sanctioned by my family. <laughs> so, this is just something my friend and I would do. We just go to my bedroom window and just throw stuff out. <laughs> that's got to come from somewhere. That's the anthropology of it, right? I mean, it is a big, it is a big part of the Italian idea. Did you guys eat? Special stuff on New we Year's? We did. And you talk about the same idea of bringing good luck into your new year. Yeah. Uh, we would eat lentils because yeah, they're shaped true. like coins. And my dad would carry lentils in his pockets. Really? Because it brings money in the following year. It brings prosperity. Yeah. You know, the idea that the little round lentils are shaped like coins. And we would have cotechino or cooking salami. Yes. That's what my mother-in-law makes. Yeah. So um, that's what we always had. And that's what we're going to have uh, probably tomorrow night. It's It's the idea that you're bringing in prosperity and dispelling old problems and moving on into the next into the next year with the best possible mindset and having these these wishes for uh, a better year that's it's such a wonderful like tradition for me because I, I grew up with a sort of very american version of new year's eve in my family we were all together my grandparents my aunts and uncles and stuff and we had lentils a lot of the time, but to be fair, my dad loved lentils, so we had lentils a lot growing up. It was yeah, a big part of my childhood. I hated them until I was about 20. Um, but I did know, you know, lentils. And uh, But when I married my wife, whose family is Abruzzese in Tuscan, my mother-in-law and her family make cotechino uh, yeah. sausage, and they make cabbage and potatoes, and uh, it's very 
different than what I was used to. But when we're home, I actually really look forward to being with my in-laws on New Year's Day because that tradition is something I never had. And uh, it attaches me to them and to the fact that they're carrying on their Italianness in this really great way. First of all, I think it's delicious. Yeah. You know, cabbage, potatoes, cotechina, lentils, and baked onions. You don't want to be in the same room with me for three days afterwards, <laughs> but I absolutely love it. I love that my mother-in-law does it. My wife's grandmother, who's 93, she participates in it. And yeah, she's amazing. And that's a big, big deal for me. I really look forward to that. So we, we're lucky in that our culture presents so many diverse traditions for these kind of holidays, you know? Most I, definitely. I look forward to that a lot. Salute. Salute. This is a fantastic option. Let's reiterate for everybody again what we're drinking right now because I don't know if I'm yeah. starting to slur, but it's the middle of the day. It's Carpene Malvolti is the producer. Uh, so it's uh, an old uh, Prosecco house. It goes back to 1868, actually. And it's from the uh, Conegliano Valdobbiadene area of Veneto. So Veneto is known for their white wine production, right? Yeah. Ascati, Prosecco, stuff like that. Also Amarone, right, on the red yeah. side. all right. And the Corvina is the, is the grape there and on the United Line stuff. But um, they have very prestigious red wines, but they're known for their white wine and their sparkling wine. Yeah. And this comes from the very one of the best areas. It gets the DOCG. Yep. Which ironically are Danielle and my initials. <laughs> that's amazing. So that's how she knew. Wow. Basically, she tells me, she goes, wait a minute, we're DOCG together. Wait a minute. So I want to point out for those of us that are not maybe familiar going to Italy or don't speak Italian, DOCG is Dimunazione d'origine controllata garantita. So that's the highest. Um, that's the highest possible appellational. Um, it's it's pedigree for wine, yes. right? It tells you this is exactly where you're supposed to source this wine from. Yeah, this is where the best wine of this sort comes from. We, we a lot of people say the word doc, doc like it's doc, and then above it is docg. Docg. Yeah. So like if you get Parmigiano Reggiano, it gets the doc or docg. Dop. Yeah. Dop. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. Excuse me. That's the food. Um, but it's basically saying, like, this is stamp of approval. This is made where it's supposed to be made, how it's supposed to be made. It's basically a um, almost like a an anthropological stamp of approval. Uh, I look at everything anthropologically, but this is traditional. Provenance. It's, it's provenance. Thank, that's yep. exactly right. Yeah. And uh, so if you're if you're out there looking for it, it, it's, it does speak volumes about what you're consuming. And it just tells you you're, you're taking something a little bit authentic because, look, let's be realistic. Sort of like the Yankees or the DOCG. <laughs> That's right. They are, yes. We could say that together. we got a lot of fans in different parts of the country. I've never pronounced my Yankee fandom because I feel like that's a... I'm sorry to out you there. No, that's all right. Uh, the, the evil <laughs> empire. Although, to be fair, this is the first decade we haven't won a World Series. I know. They're, they're, oh. Since the 80s, right? We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Well, it's looking good. It's looking good. Yeah, we got year. promise. Um, so before we go, this has been, first of all, thank you, a pleasure. Thanks but for having me. Really, you can come back anytime, especially when you're bearing uh, great libations. <laughs> But I want to get, you know, you, you're specialized in the South. Yes. I'm going to give you a sort of challenge round here. Okay. 87% of the community in uh, the United States is Southern, so we have people from all seven Southern regions. If you could, I'll give you a little chance to prep. Tell me the wine. If you had to pick one wine from the seven Southern regions, I'll list them off uh, what it would be. Could you do that? Sure. Okay. So yeah, let's start do. Let's start up North. So. Uh, Abruzzo Molise, very much the same varietals. Out of those two regions, what are you drinking? I am drinking a Medio Pepe, and I'm not looking back. Really? 
uh, it's good enough for LeBron James. It's good enough for me. <laughs> that should be everybody's motto. Uh, but no, all, all jokes aside, only because um, Montepulciano is considered table wine. Vino da tavola. It's considered the wine of the people. But this is the very highest, most elevated wine. It would be like the first growth of um, Montepulciano. Emilio Pepe and that and also his Trebbiano is considered just ridiculous. It's and fantastic. They're retailing for? Uh, about depends on the vintage, about $1,000, depending. But if I go for the second, if I go for something I can afford, yeah, <laughs> I like uh, Quattro Mani, Montepulciano d'Abruzzo, or the Illuminati mm. is excellent. I think it shows uh, lots, of, lots of beautiful red fruit, nice tartness, and just easy finish. Okay. I also like the Marina Cervetich very much. And that's my favorite Montepulciano I can afford. That's say it again. Marina Chavetich is M M A R I N A C V E T I C. Yes, after six glasses of prosecco, <laughs> I can still do that. Bravo! Somewhere, you get somewhere, somewhere, my inner psalm is <laughs> is dignified. Yes, we're not spitting out this time. <laughs> so, Abruzzo Molise, you've got some great options. What about Puglia? Puglia, hands down. I love, absolutely adore for just, if I'm going for the highest, the X uh, wine, which is fantastic. The S wine is um, pure, just primitivo. It's monovarietal. I love it. Um, but if I'm talking about stuff I can afford every day and that I love, yeah. Um, if I'm having something very spicy, first of all, I want I want to just insert this. Juicy, fruity wines have their place at the table. Mm-hmm. You don't have to feel ashamed because you like big, bold wines. Um, I know that that's a thing in the in the sound community. People say, oh, it's got to be dry. It's got to taste like dirt, and it's got to taste like mushrooms for it to be respected. Not true. I think you're teaching people it doesn't have to taste like anything. It has to taste like what you want it to taste, like what you like. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I really like uh, Trattori Primitivo for everyday wine. Just if I'm having just Indian food or if I'm having something uh, like a tikka masala that's on the spicy side, or if I'm having uh, just Calabrese chili flakes on cheese, <laughs> yeah. you know, the Calabrese cheese. Sure. Absolutely, yeah. I have a Puglian wine. I mean, it's just what it is. Um, so Trituri Primitivo is nice. Sirocco is nice. Uh, Negromaro Primitivo blend. Fun. 12 bucks. Wow. You know, just everyday stuff. I mean, we're not talking, you know, anything that's overly serious. I mean, Puglia's got a lot to offer. It, it does. It really does. I, very I, I, much. Puglia, we're very lucky. Now, Campania is your home away from home. So just it is. tell me the, the one wine... Everybody can drink affordable that you pick from Campania. So for red wine, I pick uh, the Chirazzo that I brought you. Oh, wow. Which is spectacularly good. Um, I absolutely adore his wines. He names the wines after all of the towns in the Cilento. I, I like that. That's great advertising. And it's it's beautiful wine that's balanced and it's organically grown and vinified so that you don't wake up feeling like your head is a cinder block. So. That's huge. Yeah, that's That's huge. It's a big deal. So uh, for me, any of San Salvatore's wines are the uh, touchstone of Campania. Is it true that the organics don't give you the headache because they're lacking in sort of sulfites? No, actually, that's a great question. Sulfites are the big demon, are the uh, bugaboo, are the the easy uh, out, if you will. No. Sulfites are among the most benign substances on the planet. SO2 has been used by the Romans to purify water. Wow. So, and you have to use SO2 in order to inoculate prior to, uh, think of it as a child. 
you have to inoculate this child as soon as it's born, as soon as the grapes are um, ready to ferment, because otherwise it putrefies. Mm. So you have to use some trace amounts of SO2. Now, if you add it later in order to preserve it, it means you're covering up something you did wrong during the winemaking process. Wow. Very much like the use of oak is like the use of salt. Wow. Use salt judiciously. Yeah. You use oak equally judiciously. Otherwise, if a wine is super oaky, it's like eating a bag of potato chips. <laughs> That's it tastes amazing. good, but it'll yeah. mess. It'll f you up, yeah. <laughs> you know, because it'll give you the headaches. Right. Yeah. And it's also hiding the taste of the wine. That's amazing to know. Yeah, it's like you think about salt. We always criticize salt, and it's interesting. We don't know how much we need in our bodies. We don't know why we need it, but we know if we don't have a certain amount of salt, we can't function. Right. Exactly. So we can criticize it all we want, but it is. It's a, necessary. It's, yeah, it's yeah. a necessary element. Um, so Campania. Uh, we'll make our way down. or let's say if I'm going for something that's the epitome of it, yeah. if I'm going super high end, then I go for um, either the Feudi de San Gregorio. I like their Serpico, hmm. which is Sorbo Serpico, Serpico, which is theirs, or their Tete Cuvée, like their their highest, like Alianico. And they have a beautiful facility, by the way, which we tour uh, and a Michelin starred restaurant called wow. Marana. Where is that? That is in uh, Urpina. And that's going to be um, that's going to be coming up on our next tour. Um, our next wine tour is going to is going to feature it. Uh, and the uh, facility is designed by a Japanese architect, which really? is awesome. That's really nice. It's nice yeah. to see some different architecture coming into Italy. Absolutely, and they have their own vegetable garden where they source all of their all of their uh, food for the uh, for the restaurant. And it, it's really a very forward thinking um, facility. But yeah, their wine is is pretty good. Um, as well as uh, Luigi Moyo, who's just insane. I'm sorry I'm running on about No, I love this. This is great for our fa- I mean, as long as you can provide me with the links. No the, problem. The names, will people are going to love this. No, this is fantastic. People are going to love. I love that we're. In, I, I've been drinking, too. <laughs> I love yeah, that we're funny, encouraging. Funny, when I'm around, that tends much, to happen. Much better show. I love that we're encouraging people to shop south and uh, buy sued, as we say. And yes. this is awesome. So. Luigi now who? Luigi Moyo. His father was very old school, very prestigious producer of Southern Italian wine. And by the way, the first dock in the South was uh, for Terrazzi. Terrazzi. Yeah. So Terrazzi, Alianico is a grape. So let me just backtrack a little bit. Italian wine is the most difficult wine to study when you're a Psalm. I'll tell you why. You can name a wine after the place, the grape, (laughs) the fantasy name. In other words, like Sassicaia, like yeah. all, all sorts of things. And Italians are deliberately, we are deliberately obtuse about this. Uh, about everything. Right. What do you need to know for? <laughs> exactly. What do you care? Drink the wine. What can, do you need can, to know? Can I just tell what you? What are you writing a book? Drink can, the wine. Can I tell you a deliberately obtuse story? So everybody of course. recognizes we go back and forth. Now we've been drinking, so we can't remember if we're speaking to you like it really is uh, Friday or like the day it airs Monday. So I'm going to admit that today's Friday for me. We, we, we varied it and out of Monday <laughs> and Friday. so much we went back <laughs> in time. That's what this show's about. <laughs> we did. We drank our way back in time. But last night, there's an Italian restaurant. I'm not going to say the name because I don't want to embarrass them. But there's an Italian restaurant Uh-oh. in Brooklyn. It's closing after 70 years that oh, I've no. never gone to. And I and I didn't, Italian-American place. And I didn't really know it was there. I walked back from my new church when my wife and I moved back to Brooklyn. I passed this place. I took a picture. Long story short, my dad ended up going um, a couple weeks ago with some friends mm. and telling me how great it was, old school neighborhood, but, and it was closing in 10 days. So I'm like, I said to Nicole, we got to go try this place. This is my passion. Red checkered tablecloth, sauce on everything kind of place. 
So we went, we go last night. I look up online. I call the number. It doesn't work. I walk into the shop. There, it is empty. There's nobody but one table in the corner filled with six or seven people. And I say, can we sit anywhere? And the gentleman says, well, do you have a reservation? And I said, no, I'm sorry, we don't. I tried calling. He goes, oh, well, we're closing in a couple of days. Uh, you need a reservation. So there's nobody sitting there. So I said, well, can I make a reservation? Or do you have to call. I said, well, I called. It was a real estate agency that <laughs> the number went to. And he said, what? Uh, that's the, he goes, that's the owner's wife. So I walked out. I ended up finally. I wonder why they're closing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because the Italian, we don't really want you here. <laughs> we kind of do. We're not going to tell you. Like, I'm saying to myself, I just wanted to break. I wanted to say, like, look, I am an, a professional Italian American. I'm I'm in the tribe. Professional Italian American. Just let me eat your food. Yeah. That's all. I, you know, I just wanted something Parmigiana for crying out loud. We'll be gone in an hour. But we have that uh, ability to obscure. We don't even know why we have to hide everything from it's people. It's self destructive, it, isn't it? So we are. Maybe it's centuries of invasions that you just have to hide everything about what you're doing, but it's bizarre. It is. <laughs> Especially when you're doing business. So. We've gone through Campania. Mm-hmm. Tell me about Calabria because I... I love Calabria's wine. Yeah, I, I've been drinking this uh, Librandi. Oh, Librandi. I love that stuff. Wow. You have a good taste. Well, it's not... Again, not expensive, right? That exactly. retails for... That's... Uh, Chiros uh, is, is about, uh, what, 15 bucks? Yeah, it's like thereabouts? nothing. I, yeah, I stumbled on it at a restaurant. It is so drinkable. Yep. With everything. I got something. I'll do you one better. I'll raise you. Sounds that, great. Uh, from the same producer from Lorandi, Gravello, which Gravello. is the sup- Gravello, which is the super Calabrian. I didn't know there was a super Calabrian. Right. So that's the uh, blend of the Bordelais varietals, and they blend in a little bit of the Calabrese red. So it basically, uh, Galliopo is the name of the grape. Almost spaced. I mean, a lot of, a lot of Prosecco here. Um, <laughs> but it's all right. It maintained. No, it's the name of the grape is uh, Galliopo. And I love that red grape. It's um, black fruit, just inky, just real concentrated flavors of black forest fruit in there. So uh, they blend that. They make a super Tuscan out of it with the Galliopo. Really? And Gravello is fantastic. And the best place to pick that up is on Arthur Avenue at Arthur Avenue Cantina. Yeah, really. Anthony Angrisani over there and his, his guys are they have a bananas good, really well curated Italian section. Uh, yeah, I think the the Calabrese stuff is fantastic. And if you can go to Arthur Avenue, and tell them you were sent by Arthur Avenue Food Tours in the podcast. It's not going to do anything for you, but just tell them because no, we, they'll, we, they'll hook you up. Yeah, yeah, good. Tell them, tell them Christian and Danielle sent you. They give you a hookup. Christian's got some credit. We we got nothing. So don't don't <laughs> use the podcast because it just spread the word. Help us out. So, all right, we've gone through Abruzzo, Molise, Puglia, so, Campania, Calabria. Calabria. There's two more regions, right? I also want to point out the Vulture area of okay. Calabria. Yep. Well, Basilicata, right? I'm sorry. I've been drinking. <laughs> so we're going to Basilicata now. Basilicata, very simply, uh, all the wine from the Vulture. I have Vulture, which is one of my favorite, and Cayenera uh, from Massanoia Imports there. Uh, Cayenera, K-A-J-A-N-E-R-A is one of my very favorite uh, Alianicos because they have the same grapes that Southern Campania have. But um, so, I mean, essentially, Lucania is such a contiguous, like that's my family's yes. homeland. So 
I have some family over the border in Campania, some in Basilicata, and really, if they could agree on a capital, it would be a province, but they can't. They can't agree on their own capital, so <laughs> it, they're split between the two, but, but similar. But you have a hell of a nice palace there. Oh, you, you have, have a hell of a nice place royal palace. to be there. I tell you, that is such a beautiful place. The first time that, I saw it, I lost my mind. Oh, my gosh. Basilicata gets, I mean, now, it's funny, I've been doing this work professionally for a long time, and Rosella always says it's it's... Instagram and social media that has really done a lot. I also think the Arab Spring cut off a lot of tourism to North Africa, helped Southern Italy a lot. But mm. people are seeing... That's a great point. Yeah, people are seeing how absolutely untouched, and Basilicata is the untouched of the untouched. I mean, Matera is finally having its day in the sun. After the Cilento. All. Oh, I mean, the Cilento, gosh. where we do, and again, shameless plug here, but, no, but it's like on. Amalfi without the yachts and the... Oh, <laughs> That's it's great. It's you know? so true. I tell people, all, I've been telling people since I was a kid. I'm like, you don't understand. Everybody asks me, what hotel should I stay at in Positano? I'm like, you shouldn't go to Positano because it's, a, it's a fishing town. It's beautiful. Yeah. But it's a fishing town built in whatever century that doesn't have enough sewage facility to handle the amount of tourism. So it's <laughs> overloading constantly. <laughs> Yummy. Yeah, but it's true. It's like you gotta, you, you're got you limited. You, you really don't want to do those roads. I'm like, no. go, go to Chilento. Yes. You can have the most beautiful town. Looks the same. Feels the same. You may not have as many wide uh, open designer spaces. brands. But, yeah, wide open spaces. Easier access to they the rest. They have an outlet mall now. Oh, they, they have do? one on the Buffalo Highway that they opened up. Yeah. Let me say what we're talking about, the Buffalo Highway. And I, I want to get back to Basilicata. But I think Buffalo meat for me, has been the most underappreciated part of that whole... I think it's the best steak I've ever had. totally have to come with us one time. We'll go to one of my favorite places there, which is called La Porta de la Sirena, which is an old bufala farm. It's still a working buffalo farm, where they took the old uh, barn and they turned it into a gorgeous dining room. I went there with Nayef. You went there? Oh, so you had the buffalo steak. Yeah, Porta de la Sirena. the best steak I ever had in my life. The door of the siren. It is the best. People think I'm crazy when I say it. I mean, Kobe, I've been to Japan. Of it. To me, the buffalo is better. And number two to the buffalo was my trip to the Arctic Circle where I had reindeer. So I don't know what it is about. Reindeer? Yeah, reindeer. Oh, Rudolph. How's yes. Rudolph taste? I felt horrible doing it, but I got to tell you, it nah, was delicious. No, I really didn't. <laughs> now that now the Prosecco is making me honest, I didn't feel bad at all. It was so good with lingonberries. They made it on this campfire, these... Laplandish people. Uh, I love it. Did they bring you out IKEA furniture to sit on and stuff? <laughs> Everything's or? IKEA in Sweden, even though the yurts or whatever they call them were IKEA. Um, I love it. So Basilicata, the Vulture, and I, and finally to my beautiful island of Sicilia. Tell me the general, of the army, and the infantrymen out of the okay. Sicilian wines. So the the accessible everyday gorgeous wine in Sicily. You have so many options, but I'm going to give you one that I absolutely adore. This is a weird one. I'm going to get geeky with you. Good. This is called Ciclis. Uh, Pane Bianco is the importer for all of the uh, enophiles out there. So my friend Ryan Boker is the uh, salesperson for us there. Um, I still, I'm the Italian portfolio manager at Vines on Pine now two days a week just because, you know, I need two, two nights a week out of the house. To, <laughs> Don't we all? Just to get out, out from under. <laughs> yeah. Just to get out from under the dog and Rocco's, Rocco's a handful. And we he, both have dogs named Rocco, by the way. No, yeah, stop. I have a bulldog named Rocco. Oh, my God. Yeah, I have a cousin named Rocco who I forgot to think about when we named the dog, too, so I always feel bad when we talk about them together. <laughs> but, yeah, I have a bulldog named Rocco. This is kismet. Yeah. So uh, I, I like to give Danielle some free time, and um, I like to give her just a couple of nights a week where she can just do her thing in the house. We live in a one-bedroom apartment in Manhattan, so you know what that's like. Yes, that's absolutely. Like. So it gives me something to do when I make a little extra scratch and I get to go back to my old school. I go back, get to go back to Gryffindor and you know, <laughs> play the alumni professor. So 
one of our friends who lives in the neighborhood actually um, works with this fantastic producer in Sicily, uh, and the name of the wine is called Siclis, S-I-C-L-Y-S, which is a Nero d'Avola, which is aged in amphora, the way the ancient Greeks did Wow, really? Current release is 2009. Wait a minute. Yes. Say that again. Exactly. You, so, you just got the. You just so got when the, you open yeah. a bottle, the newest wine to come out of there is ten years old. Yes, aged in an amphora. Yes. For those of you who are not uh, anthropology geeks or wine geeks, an amphora is the traditional terracotta vessel. Uh, exactly. One of the most important shipping containers of its day. Really, that's where everything yes. was, was shipped. Clay around. pots, basically. Clay pots. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Big, tall clay pots. So it's neutral. So what effect does it have? Is it's neutral? It doesn't impart through osmosis, right? Through the cellular barrier. And through um, just basically the chemical process, it imparts less flavor. Hmm. It imparts mineral, but it doesn't impart the flavor that wood does, and it doesn't mitigate uh, the acidity nor the tannin the way wood would. Wow. I'm sorry. I just said wood, wood, (laughs) didn't I? It works. We're not transcribing these things. So at the end of the day, it just tastes vastly different. So how does it taste? I'll bring you a bottle. Sounds great to me. So it's great. It, it lends complexity and nuance because it's, it's a mature wine that's fully ready to drink. A lot of the time, the problem in the wine world is you have this gorgeous... Imagine just having Michael Jordan as a infant, mm. putting a basketball in, in his hands, having him shoot, and seeing that he's got something there. Yeah. But you rush him into the NBA sure. at that's, that age. My, my family's been in the horse racing business for a long time. We say that's the Kentucky Derby. You take, you go to kindergarten, yep. pick the kid you figure's got the best shot at being the NBA, and pull him out and try to run him. That's really what it is, you know? I mean, how many other wines are aged like this? Very few. Actually, one is, and I can't believe I've been this remiss, but the De Conchilis uh, people in the Chilento, where Paula De Conchilis and Bruno De Conchilis, her brother, have been carrying the water for a long time. They are natural winemakers in that area. They're switching to Anfora now. That's amazing. And it's fan-effing-tastic. <laughs> it really is. Now, you said earlier the earliest evidence of winemaking in a mass scale was found in... Uh, the Phoenicians. Phoenicia. Yeah. I remember reading, because I read all this archaeology stuff, about a year ago, a cave in Sicily, where they discovered the residue of what was thought to be the oldest wine in Europe, so mm-hmm. not Phoenicia, because the Phoenicians were in Sicily for so long, yeah. um, that they could actually kind of like still tell in this residue what the varietal was, and it was in Amphora. It was, it's mm-hmm. amazing to me yep. to think that these things have been part of who we are for so long. Absolutely. So that's your, that is your... That's my entry level. Entry level Sicilian. So, and also another, to be fair, other, other really good Sicilian wines are uh, Di Giovanna is a great vineyard. And also Terrazze de Letna, mm-hmm. uh, the producer of the wine I brought you. Fantastic wine. But my tip top is Donna Fugata. My favorite bottle of wine. Mille una notte. Absolutely. Mille una notte. Okay, so why? Because it's rich. It is bold. It is. It has deep fruit. It's gorgeously balanced. It drinks the way a Bordeaux would taste if it had the good fortune of being born a Sicilian. <laughs> That's the, that is the takeaway line from this entire episode. That's brilliant. That is one of my favorite producers of wine uh, right there with the Montepulciano da Boot. So. And the honorable mention there, of course, is going to be their dessert wine, which is Benrier, which means divine wind. Oh, really? Which I, is I don't pasito. think I've ever had theirs, actually. Oh. Pasito, Sicilian dessert wine, if you haven't had a Pasito, to me, that is like... 
It's sick. Oh, it's they served it at Del Posto by the glass. That's where I first oh. heard about it. And the best vintage that they've seen in a generation is the 9. 2009, mm-hmm. if you can get it. By the okay. way, here's some crib notes for you. 2015 is the generational vintage across most Appalachians in Europe. If you have the good fortune of grabbing and holding 2015, it is the quintessential. It's like 2002 for champagne. Grab it. Buy it with two hands. Let me say this again for the for the audience. This is an amazing insider tip you're getting here on the Italian American podcast. If you buy a wine from 2015 from anywhere in Europe, I like to earn my keep here. <laughs> you're, you're doing a great job with this. <laughs> buy it. Hold on to it. Buy multiple bottles because it's yeah. apparently the best year in forever. Yeah. So left bank of Bordeaux, right bank uh, Tuscany, especially Barolo is going to be bananas, wow. and all throughout the south. I mean, anywhere. 2015 because it was just perfect storm oh, that's great amazing. growing season just no no screw-ups in terms of hail or any of that yeah anything like that that can it's like the ideal wines came out of that year exactly that's amazing because i to be honest i mean i you know if somebody says to me try this year or this is a good year okay but i rarely look when i'm out shopping you know i don't think about it now so. most people don't and in fact a good wine store will curate their selection and make sure that you know they they have uh if it's a bad year, they won't buy. Yeah. Um, and that's part of it. So uh, my my top pick in Sicily is certainly Donna Fugata, as far as the producer goes. Yeah. Or uh, honorable mention is SP68. The white is just fantastic. You know, Sicily gets to be, I think, a little bit on the head of the of the spear for Southern Wines. People talk about Nero Davola. Talk, but uh, yes. to, to me, what I'm so happy you've been able to help us illustrate, first and foremost, that... Um, this is important to, to care about because there's so much to learn. It's interesting. It's fun. But also we can access the places, you know, like Danielle, going to vineyards, drinking wine from where her family was from, her yeah. ancestors from. Yeah. Um, that means something to think that your ancestors were drinking the same grapes. Just and, to me it does. And that's that's the observation I had when I first came back to Italy as an adult. When I had a connecting flight from Milan, I went outside. I just posted on Facebook. I said, I'm breathing the air that my ancestors breathed. It means a lot. It means a great deal. And it was finally coming home. Because for me, just growing up, like, just to loop back to the original point, I always felt like a fish out of water. Yeah. And um, being in this setting as an adult, it really really helps me to appreciate who I became. Yeah. You know, and you can put a lot of labels on people, but at the end of the day, being from somewhere means a lot. It sure does. It sure does. And, uh, you know, honestly, it's a great way for us to close this episode because you may grow up super comfortable and feeling like a part of the majority. Maybe you grew up in an Italian enclave. Maybe you're not that into your heritage, and wherever you grew up, you felt great. And, and maybe you're not even thinking about this stuff. But the truth of the matter is we here at the show believe in blood memory and what it means to define you and the fact that you may hear an intonation in that place and – it brings back or the smell or the taste or the air, whatever it is, you know, we humans spent many, many millennia in a very small geographic footprint. And then technology and opportunity and the lack of opportunity pushed us in a million directions and the world continues to get smaller. But that place belongs to you and you belong to that place, whether you're aware of it, thinking about it, seeking it or not. And it's a great excuse to go and be a part of it. And uh, 
what better way to go than to have a great tour and get to eat thank well you. and drink well. And thank you for bringing all this in. And My I hope pleasure. you guys have a beautiful New Year's. I'm Likewise. sure we'll all be sharing lentils uh, tomorrow. We're back on Monday now, whatever day it's supposed to be. So tomorrow <laughs> we'll be eating lentils. I hope you guys are eating lentils out there. If you're in the audience and you haven't, I'm sure Rosella has it in her cookbook uh, or on her website. So it's probably a great New Year's Eve lentils recipe out there. So, Christian, thanks for being here. Buon anno. Buon anno, yes. Everybody enjoy it. Uh, make a good New Year's resolution to go back and uh, and see your madre patria or at least to try good wines and good food. Go back there. to the home world. It's worth it. It is worth it. It sure is. It makes a big difference. So from all of us at the Italian American Podcast, from Anthony, Dolores, Rosella, Pat, and myself, a very, very beautiful new year and many, many blessings in 2020. And we'll see you next week. Bye.